afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining today's webinar, co-hosted by Cure Mito and Mito Action. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action, here with my co-host, Casey Wolden from Cure Mito. We are excited to be here today to share with you information about clinical trials in Lee syndrome. Just a few housekeeping items as we get started. Today's presentation will be recorded and available through both Cure Mito and Mito Action. And as we go through the presentation, we encourage you to ask questions. So please enter those questions in the comments on Facebook, and we will do our best to get to as many questions as possible as we go through the presentation. And we'll do questions right at the end. So Casey, take it away. Thanks, Kyra. I am super, super excited to introduce Dr. Matt Klein today. He is going to uh, discuss the journey of PTC 743 and the mighty study that is happening right now worldwide for um, mitochondrial diseases and Lee syndrome. He has been involved with mitochondrial disease for over a decade. He is previously, previously served as um, Chief Executive Officer and CMO at Bioelectron. He is now the Chief Development Officer at PTC Therapeutics. Back in 2014, when my son was diagnosed, I had uh, I reached out to Matt and, uh, and emailed him and asked him, you know, what can we do to get our son on this trial? And unfortunately, the trial was closed at that time, but he gave us hope. And that's, um, and that's something that, um, I mean, coming from a CEO, that's, that's amazing. And it just meant a lot to myself and my husband. So we are just so, so thankful for Matt and his championship uh, for mitochondrial diseases and rare diseases. He is in it to win it and he is stuck by and um, we're just super excited to hear the history of PTC and learn about the MITEI study. So take it away, Matt. Thank you very much, Casey. And, and thank you, Kyra, for this really great opportunity to talk about our ongoing clinical trial, the MITEI study for, for patients with mitochondrial disease and associated seizures. And also to talk about the history of PTC 743, which I think many of you knew as, and still know as Epi 743. So maybe the best place to start in discussing the current trial is really to go back in time and start in the beginning, because we began this journey of trying to develop therapies for kids and adults affected by mitochondrial diseases over a decade ago. Uh, the project was started by Edison Pharmaceuticals at the time. Uh, the company was founded in 2005 with the single purpose of developing therapies for people affected by mitochondrial disease and, and phrygic ataxia. And it's obviously been a very long history. Uh, the journey is still going on. Uh, and while there have been a lot of ups and downs along the way, the one thing that hasn't changed is an incredibly strong and unwavering commitment to getting a therapy uh, for, for people affected by mitochondrial disease who, who desperately need one. And so what I'd like to do is talk a lot about the history of the development of EBI-743, now PTC-743, and, and some may see it also called vitiquinone, and I'll talk a bit about that, and uh, really help people understand, in part, why the journey has been so long, why has it been so challenging, and 
you know, I think why we're not going to stop. Uh, but it's, what's really important to me is for people to understand that this really is the same journey that started many years ago with the same commitment and the same desire to bring therapies to people who need it. And also importantly, I want to make sure that I can answer any questions all of you have. So as I start back in the beginning, the company was founded in the mid-2000s, and the goal was to utilize an expertise we had in a special area of science that related to chemistry and the chemistry of energy to develop drugs for patients affected by diseases of energy, like mitochondrial disease. We were actually very fortunate to get into the clinic and have an opportunity to treat patients in a very early part of the company in 2009. For those of you who know a lot about the drug development process, you know that it often takes many, many years to get from the laboratory to patients. That's because there's a period of work done to find uh, compounds or, or pre-drugs that could potentially work. And we study those pre-drugs in cells and animal models. And then there's many years and many, many millions and millions of dollars that go into testing a drug to make sure that it's safe to be given to humans. Well, we were doing all of this work in 2009 when we were approached by a physician in the United States who had a child for whom he was caring who was at the end stage of life with uh, Lee syndrome, secondary or SIRF1 mutation. And while we hadn't completed all of the work typically needed to start treating patients, in fact, we had completed relatively little of that work, we were still fortunate enough to have the FDA allow us to treat this child given the extreme uh, late stage of disease and the fact that there were no available therapies that could possibly help this child. So a very uh, strong effort was undertaken to deliver this therapy to the child and uh, the good news was the drug was tolerated and that there were signs and symptoms of improvement in this mitochondrial disease uh, that really had never been seen before given the natural history of the disease. Shortly thereafter, a second child was treated again for a special exemption or special approval given to us by the FDA to treat the patient. And again, we had a, a very uh, important findings, not only the drug being safe and well-tolerated, but also signs of neurological and neuromuscular improvement. In fact, uh, the child who was the second patient to receive the drug also with SIRF1 Lee syndrome is still on therapy today over 12 years later, which is you know, really, really special. Following the treatment of these two children, the, and still actually not having completed all of the typical testing needed to do clinical studies, the FDA allowed us to have something called an expanded access protocol, which is basically a large compassionate use type study. But this study had very restrictive criteria given the fact that we hadn't completed all of that safety testing. Specifically, we were able to enroll patients, children and adults, who had a genetically confirmed mitochondrial disease and who were within in the opinion of the treating physician, 90 days of end-of-life care. In other words, this was a study that was reserved for children and adults who had confirmed mitochondrial disease, but who were in the opinion of their treating physician at the end stage of disease. And the reason for that was quite simple. 
uh, the FDA was being appropriately conservative uh, given the fact that we hadn't completed all of the long-term safety testing typically need, it done, typically done in animals and usually always done before getting into the clinic. So this was, a, this was really an example of flexibility from the Food and Drug Administration to allow treatment for a subset of patients with mitochondrial disease who were at really very late stage disease and who could then make an informed, can, informed decision around whether or not they wanted to participate in this study. And this compassionate use or expanded access protocol ran between 2009 and 2012. Now, it's important to remember where the field of mitochondrial disease drug development was at this time. Quite simply, it was very early days. Not only were there, as they are today, approved therapies for patients with mitochondrial disease, there really had never been clinical trials done before. Uh, and so this was really a pioneering effort of trying to get a therapy to patients with mitochondrial disease. Over the course of this expanded access protocol, we enrolled children from, and adults from different parts of the United States. The initial part of the study is really focused on 13 weeks or 90 days because the criteria to get into the trial was uh, 90 days of end-of-life care. And so the real focus of this study was understanding the safety of, of EBI-743, understanding what kind of effects we could observe in, in patients with different mitochondrial disease uh, subtypes, and also obviously seeing if we could have an impact on changing end of life, given that this was 90 days of end of life uh, care. And, and I also want to recognize at this point that this Getting this study started and getting patients enrolled it was, was really a first for so many people, including our uh, patients and families and, and, and foundations with whom we worked, and also the physicians who had never done clinical trials for their patients with mitochondrial disease. And so this was really a very exciting time as we sought to learn a lot about how the drug worked because we still hadn't fully defined the mechanism of action of the drug that we had some important clues, and also start to learn how this therapy could work for patients. Would it work on all different disease subtypes? Would it be certain symptoms that responded than others? And so that was really the work of this first period of time. In parallel that we ran, in, in parallel to running the expanded access protocol in the United States from 2009 to 2012, we also began treating patients outside of the United States. The company got a call uh, in 2010 to treat a young girl who was located in Europe, who eventually got uh, treated uh, with Epi743 at the Ospedale Pediatrico Bambino Gesù in Rome. Uh, and this uh, was also a patient who had Lee syndrome secondary to SURF1. And following the treatment of this child who tolerated the drug well and also started showing signs and symptoms of improvement in the opinion of the physicians, we began a compassionate use program that ran at the Bambino Gesù Hospital as well as other centers in Europe and gradually expanded to other areas of the globe. So really when we look at this period of 2009 to 2012, we consider this in the company the era of compassionate use where we made a number of important learnings about the drug. So what did we learn? We learned one, that the drug was safe and well tolerated, which was incredibly important given how uh, sick some of the patients were who took the drug. Second, we learned that the drug was having an effect on different disease symptoms of all different types of mitochondrial disease, whether it be Lee syndrome, Polgy, MELAS, MRF, 
uh, we were seeing that we were, the physicians were reporting improvements in symptoms, such as improvement uh, in the number or decrease in the number of seizures, improvement in motor function, ability to uh, walk in cases of children who may have lost the ability to walk, improvements in speech, improvements in tolerating feeding. Uh, an improvement in balance uh, and other aspects of neurological and neuromuscular function. There were also reports of decreased need for transfusions in children who had Pearson syndrome and were requiring transfusions. There were also other reports of benefit in other organ systems. Also, in addition to these clinical effects, a number of patients underwent uh, special scans or special x-rays of the brain, and these were done by a team at Stanford who subsequently published all of these data, showing that treatment with Epi743 was associated with an improvement in the cellular health of the brain of patients who were treated. Specifically, they were able to show that there was higher levels of uh, or let me say lower levels of oxidative stress in the brain cells, and they did this by measuring the levels of uh, native antioxidant levels in the brain. So the summary of, of that whole uh, set of studies was that not only were we seeing clinical improvement, but we were seeing that there was an improvement in the energetic status of the brain, uh, which was very important in uh, one, understanding uh, that the drug was having an effect across all mitochondrial disease subtypes, two, the drug was reaching the brain and having an important effect relative to the disease. And so it was really uh, in this period that we began to learn about how Epi743 was working. Uh, and we took the information from the clinic and these brain scans and brought it back to the lab to make even more learnings. We were having similar reports from outside of the United States on improvement in patients who were being treated. And as we came to uh, 2012, we had enrolled in the United States protocol 94 patients. And I can report of those 94 patients, over 40 of those patients who were enrolled in, in within uh, 90 days of end-of-life care are actually still alive and on drug today, which I think is uh, an important data point from that experience. But this was really just the beginning. We then had to really take the next steps in doing real formal drug development to, to move Epi743 forward. We, during this period of time, we, we had gone back and completed all of those tests you usually need to do to get into the clinic. So by the time we arrived in 2012, we were at a point where most typical drugs would be in the development process. All of the preclinical check boxes had been marked, uh, and the FDA came to us and said, look, you've ran this expanded access protocol for a number of years. It's now the time that you do real formal drug development, phase one, phase two, phase three studies. And so we began that, uh, began that effort. But there are a lot of challenges. Uh, there, again, we were in a point where there really had been no previous clinical trials done in mitochondrial disease. There were no real strong natural history studies done in mitochondrial disease to help inform us how to do clinical trials. There were no endpoints that had been developed for uh, mitochondrial disease. And, and endpoints, just for those of you not familiar with some of the clinical trial language, an endpoint is something in a clinical trial you say, we're going to see if we can make better. It's really the, the thing that you measure first and foremost in a trial in terms of clinical effect to say whether a drug is delivering a benefit or not. And the FDA always uh, likes you to have endpoints 
or things that you measure in clinical trials that have been shown before to be important in disease and been what's called what they call validated, which is true signs of um, measuring an effect on a disease. In fact, we had conversations with the FDA as we were setting up initial clinical trials about what endpoints to select for our clinical trials. And there really was very little guidance to give us. Uh, they wanted us to use validated endpoints, they said. And there were no validated endpoints in mitochondrial disease. They said, okay, then try to use endpoints that were used in other mitochondrial disease trials before. And we said, well, there haven't been any other mitochondrial disease trials before. So it became very clear to us that we were really pioneers here and we're going to have to try to figure out how to make a path while we walk down it. Uh, I'll also mention that there were no real solid disease registries at the time. And when you're trying to do drug development, one of the things that's really important is for the patient community to have registries. Uh, registries list patients, where they are, who have, what patients have which mutations, what's the age of the patient, are they interested in participating in clinical studies, all things that make us make it easy for us to understand if, are there enough patients to do a trial and if they are, where are they located? Uh, and I'll, I'll just use this as a quick, quick opportunity to um, make a point that I, uh, and recognize the tremendous efforts of the CureMito Foundation in getting a Lee syndrome registry up and running. Uh, they have already entered over 120 uh, individuals into this registry, which is incredibly terrific work given a short amount of time. Uh, that that registry has been going on. And I think it really demonstrates the power of, of parents and patient groups to actually help move things forward for developing therapies for the disease. So I encourage everyone to get to the CureMito website and find out about this registry and participate because it's so incredibly important for us who are trying to develop drugs. But now moving back to 2012, we didn't really have these tools at our disposal. And, and we made a conscious decision in 2012, which was instead of trying to do all of the years long work of developing natural histories, learning about what endpoints we could use in clinical trials, building registries, we said we really didn't want to wait. We have a therapy that we thought could help people. And so if we wait many more years to try to develop these things, we're going to miss an opportunity to take crucial steps in trying to get patients a therapy. So what did we do? we said we're going to move forward we're going to study a whole bunch of different mitochondrial disease subtypes as well as study epi743 and other diseases that look like mitochondrial disease like Rett syndrome for example and try to do uh, the rigorous studies to learn about where the drug was really working and learn at the same time by doing a clinical a number of different clinical trials how to actually do the best clinical trials to develop a drug for mitochondrial disease and this is really the next phase in the development of EBI 743, and it took place between 2012 and 2016-17, where we ran a number of different studies around the globe, made, again, a number of important learnings about how the drug was working uh, in terms of, one, the fact that it was safe and well-tolerated, two, by looking at the effects on different disease subtypes. And we also made a number of important learnings about how to develop a drug. Unfortunately, none of these studies provided strong enough data to allow us to get EPI-743 approved. Uh, and therefore, we were left at, by the end of 2017, asking ourselves, where do we go next? Well, for one thing, we learned a lot about how to do clinical trials. 
we learned about what's the right length of a trial to be, what the right length of a trial should be to demonstrate an effect. We learned about the right kind of endpoints. We learned about how to, how to deal with, or at least think about how to deal with the extreme heterogeneity of mitochondrial disease, uh, which is a big challenge of clinical trials. And we learned about how to set up the right sets of inclusion criteria, how to think about allowing supplements in clinical trials, all things that we knew nothing about when we started on this journey years before. Also by 2017, the field had started to grow up. We were seeing more and more companies coming and looking at developing drugs for mitochondrial disease. We saw registries were starting to grow. There was a little more work being done by endpoints. There were alliances being formed between industry and physicians and patient foundations to think about how to do clinical trials. And you know, we, this was, real, was really an exciting development, not only for us in developing FP743, but also for the field. I also want to point out at this time, we as a company uh, really struggled. Uh, we had spent uh, lots of money, hundreds of millions of dollars to get Epi743 to this point. Uh, we were incredibly frustrated, but no way near as frustrated or disappointed as the patient community that we hadn't collected enough data to get the drug approved. And But what we were, we were absolutely convinced that we had learned so much that we were ready to take the next step forward and while we had some successes and some setbacks, we were absolutely ready to take the next step in developing the drug. And we felt we had learned so much that we could significantly increase the chances of success in the next set of trials to get the drugs approved. Because we had now collected so much data from so many trials showing that the drug was delivering uh, signs of clinical benefit, that all we had to do was really think about the best designs and the best trials to do to now get the drug across the line. It's also around this time in the history of the drug that we, in an effort to raise more funds to support more drug development uh, for Epi743, that Edison changed its name from Edison Pharmaceuticals to Bioelectron. And I know that was confusing for a lot of people at the time because they knew Edison and Epi743 and didn't, what did it mean that we were now Bioelectron? Well, it certainly did not mean we were walking away from a commitment to developing drugs for patients with mitochondrial disease. In fact, what it meant is we were thinking about what we can do from a corporate level to rebrand the company and try to raise more funds uh, in order to continue our efforts in developing drugs for mitochondrial disease, as well as developing other aspects of technology like measurement and other things that can be very important to helping in the development of a drug for patients with mitochondrial disease. These efforts took time, uh, and it's why I think a lot of people during the 2016, 17, into 2018 time wondered where we had gone and where Epi743 had gone. And the truth was we were there. We were continuing to make as many learnings as we could from all the clinical trials that we were doing. We were restructuring our organization to make sure that we were in the best position possible to continue to advance Epi743 forward for patients. And we actually were harvesting even more data from our clinical trials that allowed us to have discussions with FDA and other regulatory authorities about potential earlier approval, uh, a potential approval from the earlier data we had. Obviously that didn't happen, but we wanted to make sure we had every possible discussion and open and, and took any potential opportunity we had to get the drug approved. And so by the time we arrived to 2019, 
uh, we actually had the opportunity at BioElectron to join forces with PTC Therapeutics. Uh, for those of you who don't know PTC Therapeutics, it's a company that was founded in 1998 and was dedicated singularly to developing therapies for patients with rare diseases. PTC pioneered the field of drug development for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and had the first ever drug approved Translarna for, for patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And so by joining forces with PTC, we believed, and rightly so, we were bringing even more muscle uh, to our efforts to developing a drug for patients with mitochondrial disease. And so Epi743 then became PTC743 because Epi743, Epi stood for Edison Pharmaceuticals Inc. And now this was a drug that we were going to develop with PTC as a part of PTC. And so we renamed it PTC743. Uh, and so as we became part of the PTC family in 2019, we then began efforts to start the next set of clinical trials with 743. And the, the next trial we wanted to do based on all of the learnings we had made was a trial, the, the MIDI trial, which is in patients with mitochondrial disease and associated seizures. And so many people have asked, why? Why were you just focused on patients with seizures when you had all this data showing that you had benefit in all different symptoms of mitochondrial disease? And the answer is we believe that this was the best strategy to be able to get the drug approved. Why? Well, first, if we know that seizures are a really uh, significant aspect of mitochondrial disease for a lot of patients. We knew from a lot of our clinical studies that we were having an impact on seizures. Uh, we have done, uh, we have reports from patients with MELAS, from, with uh, Paul G. Alpers, with Lee syndrome. We have reports that we were decreasing the number of seizures. We had also done a, a clinical study in patients with PCH6, which is a severe mitochondrial disease subtype of seizures, where we were able to stop the state of continued seizures known as status epilepticus and also significantly decreased the number of seizures patients were having. So we knew we were having an effect on something that was really an important part of, of, of mitochondrial disease. We also knew that seizures are something that regulatory authorities understood in terms of showing benefit. As I mentioned earlier, this, this idea of an endpoint, having a, a, something you study in a clinical trial that is, is easily measurable, quantifiable, and regulatory authorities understand what it means when you make them better, is really an important practical aspect of, this, of doing a clinical trial. And so what we decided is, based on all of our learnings, let's organize a trial around this common symptom of seizures, understanding that it won't be available, the trial at the moment won't be available to all patients with mitochondrial disease, but this would really be a first step, a first door to open, a path to get the drug approved, after which we can then open up the opportunity for more patients with mitochondrial disease. And so we then worked very closely with the European and American regulatory authorities to design this trial, uh, and we launched the trial of all things during the COVID pandemic. And, and that was also a decision that we thought about uh, very carefully uh, because obviously there's a lot of challenges in starting a trial in COVID, uh, already a lot of risks to patients having to travel during COVID. But we said, we've waited long enough to do the next trial. We can't wait any longer. We didn't want to waste any more time in trying to get this drug approved. And so we understood that it may take longer to enroll the trial by doing it in COVID, but we also try to incorporate different 
parts of a trial to make it easier to participate during COVID by reducing the number of visits that were needed to study, to number of visits to study sites needed to participate, allowing for virtual visits, allowing for nurses to come into the home to draw blood rather than having to go to laboratories. We also included a large number of sites in the United States and outside of the United States. So we had more sites closer to patients' homes, again, all to try to make it easier for folks to participate in the study. We also at the same time launched a phase three trial on Friedrich ataxia based on a lot of the positive data we had gotten from phase two and other learnings we had made from our experience in developing drugs for Friedrich ataxia patients. And that study also was started during COVID and has been enrolling very well. As for the MITEI study, uh, it is again uh, open now to patients, uh, children under age 18 uh, with a genetic mutation consistent with mitochondrial disease and also with associated seizures. Uh, there's a certain minimum number of motor seizures required to participate in the study. Uh, and again, this was an important element of the design that we had discussed with regulatory authorities. Uh, the study, if you're eligible to enroll, uh, you'll come into the study and get observed for, for four weeks. And in that four week period, you'll be given kind of an iPad type uh, device to count the number of observable motor seizures over those four week period. After that, if you meet the criteria of having at least six observed seizures in that month time, all study participants will be randomized to receive uh, either 743 or placebo uh, for six months. And that's that placebo phase that is really necessary for us when we do clinical trials to clearly demonstrate uh, drug benefit. But after that six months, everyone, whether you're on placebo or not, will continue on 743 for at least another year. So if, if you participate in the study and get randomized to placebo, you'll absolutely be sure to get the drug uh, in the study in six months' time. I know a lot of folks have... Um, wanted assurances from us that we were not going to stop the study or if, uh, you know, is PTC going to continue to develop the drug or there are going to be more delays if we come into this trial? And the answer is PTC uh, is 100% committed to completing this trial. We want to enroll this trial. We want to move PTC 743 forward to patients with mitochondrial disease. And even though it's a pandemic, that's not going to stop us from continuing the trial until uh, we can get to the end and get an answer and hopefully get 743 closer and closer to approval. I also want to mention, uh, because I, I mentioned that the Epi743 became PTC743, uh, it, the drug also goes by the name Vitiquinone. Uh, and as people may know, when drugs get developed, they get different names at different stages of development. The 743 number was really from the laboratory days before the drug came into the clinic. And, and the chemical name we use for the drug right now is vitiquinone. So you may see it called PTC 743 or vitiquinone. Uh, and by the way, vitiquinone is a name that's based on Vatic or Vatican because a lot of the early work we had done was done at the uh, Ospedale Pediatric Manager Zoo at the Vatican. Uh, so it's an acknowledgement of that collaboration and quinone, which is the structure of the drug. So that's how you got that quinone. So we're continuing to roll this trial. We remain inc incredibly enthusiastic about continuing our efforts. I, I realize that the path has been quite long uh, and probably too long, certainly for us who have been working on it. And I'm sure even longer for the patients and families who have wanted 
to have an opportunity to be in a trial of 743 or to have a drug approved for their disease. Uh, and, you know, obviously we've had a lot of challenges along the way. We've had a lot of successes, some struggles. Uh, but the one thing that hasn't changed over all this time is our 100% commitment to doing everything possible to get this drug approved and getting this drug to patients. And I also want to acknowledge that this journey of over a decade's time has been an incredible global collaboration. It's been a, it's been a partnership between us, between patients, between families, between foundations like MitoAction and CureMito and physicians. There's, there's no question that when you're going to do something that's never been done before, that is getting a drug approved for mitochondrial disease, it, it, it takes more than a village, it probably takes a country, but it certainly, you know, it takes in a collaboration between all invested parties because we're all of this together and we all want the same outcome, which is drugs for, for people affected by mitochondrial disease. So with that, I will uh, open things up to questions and, and again, just thank uh, Kyra and Casey for this incredibly important opportunity to speak with you all and answer your questions. And again, just express my incredible gratitude for all who have helped us on this journey. Uh, I know it's, as I said, it's been a long journey, a lot longer than any of us wanted, but we're not stopping because the journey's not over. Thank you so much, Matt. And I, I, I mean, I can't express to you the gratitude this community has for your personal commitment. And you think about 12 years that you've stuck with this process, you've stuck with the drug development through the highs, the lows, multiple companies. Um, and I just can't say enough about how appreciative and grateful we are to you um, because it's through leadership like that that we're gonna get this across the finish line. And so we're incredibly grateful. And I just hope you, you know the magnitude of our gratitude for you. So, um, Casey, do you have a question you want to kick it off? I've got a list here, um, but if there's a couple that have come in and you have right out of the gate, why don't we start there? Uh, I do have a question. Um, if this drug does get approved by the FDA for seizures, can, will, can we get an off-label prescription, maybe possibly for kiddos with mitochondrial diseases without seizures? Yeah, so, so um, what, Casey, what you're alluding to is when you get a drug approved, a uh, regulatory agency will, there'll be something called the label. Uh, anyone who has a medication can open up the lid. It's like this five, <laughs> this big piece of white paper with all this printed ink all over it. And one of the things it says is what the drug is indicated for. And since we're doing a clinical trial in mitochondrial disease associated seizures, it's likely that you'd have a label that would be... Uh, reflective of what you studied in the trial. Um, we as a company will be fully committed after that to seeing how we can make sure we can get a label that would have more and more uh, indications for as many patients with mitochondrial disease as possible. And obviously that would require additional research and additional studies. We as a company can't talk about off-label use. That's something we can't advocate or even talk about. Um, we can talk about the label and what it's approved for. Um, and you know, then everything else becomes a physician decision. Matt, can you help us understand? So, for a family that's listening who is interested in learning more about the qualification criteria and uh, connecting their child and physician to learn more and potentially enroll in the trial, where do they start? Yeah, absolutely. So, there's a few options. So, hopefully, not <laughs> not overwhelming number, but I, I think several different things that can be helpful. 
So first, we do have a website for the trial, and it's www.themit-trial.com. The second is we have an email at PTC that's called medinfo, M-E-D-I-N-F-O, medinfo, at ptcbio, ptcbio.com. That would be an email that goes right to our patient care group that we can then right away figure out where to send you from there. Also, obviously, Chiro Action has been incredibly supportive in providing information and helping patients navigate towards clinical trials. I would say, obviously, you can reach out to Mito Action. You can also uh, talk to your Mito doc. Uh, they may not be a participant in the study. We can't have every physician at every hospital in the country be a, a site but they may be able to help reach out as well to some of the sites. There's also a website, clinicaltrials.gov, C-L-I-N-I-C-A-L-T-R-I-A-L-S dot G-O-V. And you can search under uh, mitochondrial disease or PTC743 or vetiquinone, and that will show information about the trial as well as where the study sites are, where the site's being conducted, and contact information for their sites. So a lot of places you can look, and uh, if you have questions, please, please reach out. Um, mm -hmm. Want to make sure that anyone who might be able to participate and wants to can have that opportunity. Thank you for that, um, Matt. Can you talk a little bit about for so for a patient who who is interested in the trial, whose doctor is not familiar, like what's the best way for them to approach that conversation with their doctor? So you know what I mean. You you got you, there's a balance in in making recommendations for how you want your care to go, but we always encourage our patients to be their own best advocate. So any recommendations you have for the best way to broach that conversation? Yeah, that's such a great question, Kyra, because over the years I've spoken to a lot of parents. They say, I really wanted to be in a trial, but my doctor isn't participating or my doctor mm -hmm. doesn't know about the trial. And also, I'm afraid since they're not participating, will they be mad at me if I go to another hospital or another doctor for the trial? And I, I would simply start by saying I think every single physician I've ever, I'm a physician myself, I, um, and I can say every physician I ever met it really wants nothing more than to help their patients. Uh, so I think starting from knowing that everyone's in this together and saying, hey, you know, I heard that there's this trial, and just saying I just want to learn more about it, um, I think, you know, if their physician can get that information, that's great, but also, you know, the great thing about the internet is I think patients and families can also have access to getting some, you know, emailing us and we can direct you to more information. And the other thing that, you know, we have a number of investigators who are in a trial who are really wonderfully, just wonderful folks. And they also can talk to their physicians as well. So let's say, for example, you're in, I don't know, say Cincinnati, Ohio, and and your doctor's not in the trial, but there's a site in Akron with Dr. Bruce Cohen, and you could, Dr. Bruce Cohen can talk to your doctor and make sure that everything is smooth and there's consistency. And, and actually, when you're in the trial, you're also given something called a Dear Doctor letter that you can give to your physician that talks about the trial and the do's and the don'ts. And, and, and so I don't want anyone to feel like if they venture off into the trial that they're leaving the security of a longstanding relationship with a great doctor they have close to home. Yeah, I think that's an important fact. Um, that you bring up, Matt, is that you know the coordination of care and having everybody who's part of the care team involved and aware and communicating about what's going on, especially when a patient is participating in a clinical trial, is a really, really important piece. 
Casey, I throw it back to you. Do you have another question? No, I just I just want to reiterate the fact that um, you know it is so important to participate in clinical trials. Uh, without patients enrolled, we don't know how the drug works, you know, and we and we need this drug approved. So um, it's just super important. It's a huge puzzle piece in drug development, um, enrolling in clinical trials. So yeah, please consider. Please consider. Absolutely. A few more questions I have, Matt. Can you, if a patient enrolls in the trial, will they be required to come off of other medications that they're on during the trial? Another really good question. And, and I, I put this under the heading of things we've learned along the way, uh, because I know most uh, people who are with mitochondrial disease are on some combination of cocktail supplements, and, and obviously maybe if you have seizures, you're on a keto diet or on other seizure medications. And we were very careful to design this protocol so that you can stay on any supplements that you've been on. Uh, and the reason for that is because if you're still having the seizures with all the supplements, then there's no need to, they, they won't interfere with our ability to understand mm -hmm. if, if 743 is working or not. Mm -hmm. There are some important uh, specifics around being on stable amounts of everything and a stable regimen because obviously if you come into a clinical trial and we're trying to answer the question is how is 743 working for your mitochondrial disease, we can't be changing so many things at the same time. We can't right. start 743 and change supplements or add new things because it make it harder to answer that's the question of how is 743 specifically impacting your disease. Perfect. And what happens when a child is um, is 18 and participating and what happens as they're going through the process or that first four month um, evaluation period that they turn 19? Do they still qualify? Yeah, so great question. So that, that, uh, that observation period around four weeks, we have some specific language around age before, but I also want to indicate we're, we're looking right now at increasing the age window. So we're looking at increasing up to 21 years of age. And, and I know someone's going to ask, well, why can't you just include everyone? And part of this was a decision. One of our challenges in all clinical trials, but absolutely in mitochondrial disease, is try to account for the heterogeneity of disease, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that mitochondrial disease can look really different in different people. Even if you have the same mutation, syndrome could look different. And then, of course, that changes as you increase more age window, right? Because the disease at age two may look different than the disease at age 19 in people. So one of the things we tried to do in minimizing that variety or heterogeneity was have a tighter age window. But we also realized that we're coming across a lot of people who are 18 and 19, or we even had one patient um, who was enrolling and who had basically turned 18 <laughs> as you were starting it. And we said this, let's open it up at least to 20 million. It's a trade-off. We're, we're increasing the age a little bit, but we're going to make give an opportunity to more people. That's great. That's good Good news to hear. You, you talked a little bit about this, but can you tell us a little bit more about the steps and measures that PTC is taking to ensure safety as we're in you know this crazy, crazy time of COVID and it, we're not going to be out of it anytime soon? Unfortunately, it's looking like not. I, I think one of the, we know, based on all of our work, that it takes so much time, effort, sometimes many family members 
to get a, a person with mitochondrial disease just to a regular doctor visit. Yeah. You know, we, 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 this is where, you know, literally this is the takes a village, right? It takes if there's wheelchairs and portable respirators, feeding, it's just so much. And it means maybe mom takes off from work or grandma, grandpa take off. There's often, and then someone's got to watch the kids at home who can't travel. We know it's such a big commitment and, and we have always worked to provide financial support for that travel. And we continue to do so in this trial. But we also know that in COVID, it becomes even more risky, you know, getting on a plane or, or just having to travel or staying in a hotel. So one, so one thing we tried to do is minimize the number of times that, that you'd have to travel to the study site. Typically in a, in a clinical trial, many visits are required for checkups and blood tests and things like that. And we said, look, we're in an interesting um, situation because the endpoint in this trial is that the main endpoint, the number one endpoint is the number of observed seizures. Well, mom, dad, or caretaker at home is figuring that out and we can give them an electronic diary. So they don't need to come to the doctor to figure out how many seizures they're having. It's all being done at home. So why don't we minimize those number of visits and also allow the doctors to do video checkups, check-ins, and say, you know, how are things going? Because there's certain assessments that need to be done by either the doctor or nurse at the trial site. Let's do them electronically. The other thing is we often need to do blood testing just for safety. Well, we have visiting nurses who can come to the home if people are comfortable to do them at home. Uh, that way you don't have to worry about traveling just for a blood test, which are always so hard for, for I know, kids and adults with my health. So these are just some of the things we've done to really try to make the trial as uh, COVID friendly and, and overall friendly as possible, just knowing the challenges uh, that families have getting to, to medical visits. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I, I mean, when you talk about these, you know, the one of the buzzwords in clinical trials is the decentralized clinical trials. Yeah. I think is is just as much as companies are getting used to working remote and that it's okay and we can be just as as productive. The same goes with clinical trials. You can still get that that very valuable information from families without having to come into the clinic. So that's really important. Really important. Um, Casey. Anything, any other questions that we want to throw out or we want to make sure we cover? No, I just uh, can't thank Matt enough for, you know, explaining the history of uh, Epi 743 to now PTC 743. Um, and we just, you know, your commitment to this um, mitochondrial disease uh, is, is amazing and we cannot thank you enough. So absolutely really appreciate it. I echo that, those sentiments completely. And I also just want to reiterate, as, as Casey talked about and Matt talked about, that the trials don't go forward without participants. And so, you know, as patient advocacy organizations and having conversations like this, we want to make sure that we're providing the patient community and our families with as much information as we possibly can. And, you know, transparency about how the process works and what to expect. And, um, you know, you have the option to pull out if you choose to do so, but we want to make sure that we're here to provide as much information as we can to our families so that you can feel as confident and comfortable as possible as you participate um, in these clinical trials. And your, your participation is critical to the success in getting these drugs to market. So however we can support that, if there's quest additional questions that you have, if we can connect you with PTC or any of our other um, you know, pharma partners that are working on different therapies develops. We want to be there to help you and support you through that process. 
um, that's that's really really critical. So Matt, thank you again. We appreciate you, your commitment. We are grateful to you, um, and we look forward to having many more conversations like this to share with the community. Thank you, and thank you both so much for your support. And another shout out to the, the Kiermaida Registry. That's so important. Absolutely. Yes. Also, Kyra and Casey know how to reach me, so they can also follow up with questions. And, and again, th thank you all for your partnership and friendship. Yes, Casey, do you want to throw out the website for people to go to, to sign up? Yeah, if, if you just want to go to curemido.org slash cords, C-O-R-D-S, you can find uh, all the information there and um, it takes a village. And so we all need to come together and do this for, for our children and the future generations. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful afternoon and we'll talk to you next time. Take care.